Why is 21st century healthcare so focused on money and treatment, whereas how the experience feels to patients and providers is summarily ignored? Let's talk all about it with friend of the pod, Jennifer Michelle, right here on episode 239 of The Nurse Keith Show. Well, hello and welcome to The Nurse Keith Show. I'm so grateful you're here, whether you've been tuning in for years or you're hanging out with me today for the very first time. Thanks for being part of the growing Nurse Keith Nation. This podcast is all about you and your nursing career, and I'm here to share education, ideas, diatribes, and informative interviews with some of the most inspiring people from the worlds of healthcare, medicine, nursing, and beyond. This episode of The Nurse Keith Show is sponsored by Trusted Health, who replaced the traditional job search and staffing approach with an intelligent matching platform that empowers nurses to discover opportunities that fit their unique experiences and goals. Instead of a commissions-based recruiter, Trusted Health uses nurse advocates who work commission-free. Thus, their goal is to connect each nurse to the travel assignments they want and supporting them every step of the way. Check them out at trustedhealth.com forward slash Nurse Keith, and I thank Trusted Health for their generous support. And did you know you can leave a rating and review for the Nurse Keith show over on Apple Podcasts and iTunes? Please head over there, give a rating, one star to five stars, write a review, and if you let me know you did, I will read your review and thank you personally on air. Meanwhile, if you want to see the show notes for this episode, follow along at nursekeith.com forward slash the word episode and the number 239. We're welcoming friend of the pod, Jennifer Michelle, an MBA and podcaster whose insights focus on the healthcare delivery system. Jennifer, it's great to have you here. So let's jump right in. You've said that the jumping off point in healthcare shouldn't be money or resources, but how this paradigm feels to those of us involved, including patients and caregivers. Why is this so important in the 21st century healthcare paradigm? Well, I think because we have almost no understanding of what feelings are, why they matter, and what their role is. And I think we've lost that. I think we've gone from being a place where healthcare was about nurturing to a society where healthcare is very much about treatment. And I'm not saying you don't need treatments. Obviously, that's important. But we now literally talk and talk and talk about healthcare and people talk about money and supplies and, you know, um, human capital and all of these things. Mm -hmm. And nobody is really sitting there and going, wait, the first thing is, how do we want this experience to feel? And then let's build from there. It's always about well, what are the resources and how do we make it work within that? And that's, it's just not the way you create. You don't, you have to start with the feeling you want and then you can build towards that. But you can't layer on a good feeling after everything's in place. It doesn't work that way. And I think it winds up with a situation that is anything but healing. I see. So this makes me think of several things. One is that you're talking about being humanistic instead of mechanistic. Does that ring true for you? Do you resonate with that? Yeah, sure. Okay. I never thought of it that way, but there's a lot to it for sure. Yeah. Well, no charge. You can take that and run with it <laughs> if you like. No problem. You can credit me if you like. I don't. It's fine. Um, <laughs> so the other thing it brings to mind is this notion that you may have heard of before 
or maybe there's a listener out there who has, is the notion of the triple bottom line. Have you heard of that? I have not. Oh, so the triple bottom line was introduced to me by a friend here in Santa Fe who's quite a um, thinker when it comes to health. Her name's Camille Adair, and she's, well, she does many, many things, and I hope to have her on the show. But the triple bottom line means people planet and profits. So if you take a healthcare organization like a hospital system, you don't just look at the bottom line of profit, which is what it seems most are focused on. You also focus on people, which means patients and staff. And then you think about the planet and how your your institution and how it runs impacts the environment and the planet at large. So that's also an interesting concept that I think relates to what you're talking about. Absolutely. Yeah. So tell me more about this whole thing of when we value treatment over caring. What are some of the things that we lose in that process? Well, you know, the way I view things is that we have a very mental outlook in our society that it's we value intellect we value rational thought we value mm-hmm. thinking and obviously those are very very good things to have we need those yeah. but the things that make life feel good are usually considered less important even though really they are the things most essential for survival i mean you don't necessarily need to be an einstein to have a good life but you really do need somebody to care about you it's it's requirement for any person to grow up and feel, you know, healthy. And we're learning more about that as we, you know, explore adverse childhood experiences and things that that lack of nurturing in those first few days and weeks and months can set the whole tone for somebody's life because of the way their brain is interpreting baseline stress levels and the world around them. So to me, what we're seeing is that I guess I always think back historically and think about how healthcare at one point was very much about women nursing, you know, people in the community. It was about midwives and and the healthcare came from there and flip-flopped and became very rational thought, very male dominated and really left a lot of those things by the wayside because those things weren't considered, you know, as exciting and and modern as this new, very rational approach. And I think what we need to do next is combine them because you want that rational thought that looks for innovation and looks for technology, but you need to value the nurturing or the compassion or it just really doesn't work. And I know that, um, you know, more and more studies have been coming out showing that for people to do well, they need to have that kind of compassion and support. And that that's where I find things get interesting because how many people in our society don't have that? And what happens when somebody goes into a medical situation and they're talking to their doctor, they're talking to their nurse, and not only are they coming from a lifetime of not being able to trust other people and maybe never having had somebody, you know, look out for them, but maybe that doctor or nurse or other provider doesn't understand what's going on with someone from that situation and how do you reach out or how are their own issues getting in the way of that? So I think emotions play out really on a very minute level, but then they control every interaction we have and we, we're not even aware of it because we're, we're literally not taught to look at it. And in some cases, we're taught not to look at it because we consider it so not real or not worthy. So my view is we have to bring that in because that's the part that makes us human. Oh my, (laughs) 
Jennifer. Oh my what? <laughs> I could unpack that. What you just said in the last two minutes, I could unpack that and we could talk about all of that for several hours. So um <laughs> One thing you mentioned, oh my gosh, one thing you mentioned was male domination. So the patriarchal system, which we all know, especially we in the nursing field have known that we've been fighting against patriarchal domination for a long, long time when nurses were seen as pink collar, you know, female job that was considered non-professional non-expert and that we were the handmaidens of doctors. And Mm -hmm. it also brings me back, God, this is like back to high school, I think, or college, early college of this whole idea of moving from the age of reason, which was back in the, I don't know, 18th century or something, maybe with the manual Kant and all those people. Yeah. And then moving into the enlightenment where humanistic views were were brought forward and out of that mechanistic way of looking at the world. So, you know, it's almost like if you go way, way back to maybe even, I know this is getting esoteric, but to like Copernicus, where we, we looked at the universe as earth-centric, but then we realized that it was heliocentric, that the sun, we revolved around the sun, the universe didn't revolve around us. So in a way, I know I'm going really out in left field here, but it's almost like Healthcare mm-hmm. providers and the healthcare system has seen itself in a way, I guess you're saying, as the center, but we need to flip that around and say we revolve around the patient and the patient's feelings and what the patient wants and what the patient thinks. So you've mentioned the reptilian brain. So how does reptile brain function, which is something well, you you really think and talk about a lot. How does that affect our population? I will tell you, I am, I am no expert in this. Oh, I, that's it's fine. Just, <laughs> it's, um, it's a concept that I love because of my own history. And, you know, and this is, you know, I do talk about this sometimes on the show, but my background was a sexually abusive household when I grew up. And so I've had PTSD for as long back as I can remember. And I always think it's funny to call it post-traumatic stress because there was no pre, it was just always. So it's been very mm. hard to pick out the way my my brain perceives things maybe in ways that are not helpful because it's just the way I've always been since, you know, when I was really, really little. Okay. But as I've explored this and certainly as I've been married, which has not been easy for my husband when I'm like, Uh-oh. well, by the way, I'm going to act weird in various situations that make no sense to you, but boom, there it'll be. And, mm-hmm. um, what we've learned through, you know, therapy that I've worked on therapy that we were worked on together was this whole concept of this reptile brain. And it's, a concept I read about years ago, and it was called more imprinting. And I didn't realize the science kind of had caught up to this idea that I'd read about years before. And that in fact, that is what's going on is your, your survival instinct kind of in your brainstem reacts and says, this is what's, this is a threat. This is not a threat. And Mm. it's as simple as that. And it doesn't have nuance. It doesn't have anything else. And once you trigger that threat, the rest of your brain starts focusing on how to deal with it. It doesn't question it. It doesn't say, is this a real threat or is this a threat that maybe I already survived 30 years ago? It says, whoa, we're in danger now. And everything rationalizes it. And it's so funny because, you know, I got into marketing as a hobby and it became my career. And what I love about it is marketing is about communicating, but it's also entirely emotional because people buy based on emotions. 
I mean, True. it's very rare that you buy things that are just a pure logical thing. There's always an emotional factor. Either it's that you trust the person who's selling it to you or you you need a car, but you want the Porsche. You know, maybe you can't <laughs> afford the Porsche, but that's what you want, you know? And it's funny to me how marketing understands that people rationalize themselves into their decisions and how salespeople know you talk to what they're telling you is important to them and you let them convince themselves and you just keep supporting them along their individual rationalized path. And I just thought, how come business knows this about us? I mean, our entire capitalistic economy is based on this. But in healthcare, where it shows up in very different ways, or even just in our personal lives, we're taught nothing about it. But it's the same mechanism. It's that I want this, I don't want this, this is safe, this isn't safe. You know, I trust you, I don't trust you. And healthcare, I mean, where else is there as much need for trust in our society than in healthcare? And, you know, if your reptile brain is triggered into an I'm not feeling safe situation, you can't just talk to that person and expect them to trust what you're saying. And I, I honestly think that's at the root of so much of the confusion with the anti-vax situation and, and these people who are very well educated clearly love their children, uh -huh. but they have clamped down in a high, you know, protection mode and see the healthcare as a threat and the community as a threat. And it, you can't approach it logically. And every time I see another scientist go, well, the numbers just say, and I don't know how they can't see it. I'm like, because we're not rational creatures right. at root. Right. We're only rational once our baseline feels comfortable. And in that world, something has made them feel unsafe. You have to address that. And it's legitimate. You can't rationalize with somebody who feels their children are being threatened. And that's what they're feeling. Mm -hmm. So Exactly. And then the logic of, well, you know, there are immune compromised children out there. And if your child isn't immunized, you're not contributing to herd immunity. And then mm -hmm. these children who can't protect themselves are then going to get a disease that could cause them a lot of problems or be deadly for them. And right. So the logical argument doesn't work. And so when we're, I know you're not a healthcare provider, you, you have a master's in public health, but you understand obviously these deep seated issues and paradigms that impact the ways that providers approach the healthcare encounter, right? And then how the patient feels when encountering the healthcare system. So what do we have to do? Like if there's a nurse out there listening right now and she's like, yeah, I hear you, Jennifer, but what do I actually have to do in my practice to change this? What do I do? Well, you know, I think it's interesting because I've been on the side of the things as the patient who doesn't trust the medical system. Yeah. I'm I'm not a provider in the sense of being a nurse, but I, I do volunteer as an EMT and I certainly, you know, have had patients that don't trust you and you can just feel they put this wall down. And even though you're trying to help them, they're very suspicious. And what you think about is you have to address what's in the room, which is if the person doesn't trust you. Maybe you, you're not going to be able to break through it because that could be from a lifetime of very good reasons why they shouldn't trust you. You know, you, other people's experiences, you don't know what they are and they, they're probably very solid. And I think what you can do is at least understand that they're not necessarily being, you know, noncompliant. They're not necessarily being recalcitrant. They're not necessarily being, you know, obstructive or any of the 
attitudes we might attribute to them. There is something going on that is very important to them and they're scared to let us in or trust us. And in some cases, you might be able to just say, you know, have you, you know, and talk to them and, and raise the issue and go, I, I feel like, you know, there's something else going on. Is there something that could be done? But honestly, I've been in situations myself where it really, there was nothing that provider could have said to make it better, but at least the provider would have understood what was going on and what that dynamic was. Mm, and well I think that in and of itself is a big step forward than labeling it as a problem patient, which happens. Oh, it happens all the time. It happens and then, all the time. And then if that problem patient develops that reputation within a particular clinic or whatever the milieu is, an ER, you know, a frequent flyer into the ER, mm -hmm. then people start to treat that patient as oh, definitely. either less than human or just a pain in the butt or, oh, we go, here we go again, right? You, let's yeah. draw straws to see who's going to talk to the patient this time. And, you know, I was chatting with a nurse practitioner friend of mine from New Mexico on the phone last night, and she was saying how at the clinic where she works, there's some very good behavioral health staff. And for some of her patients, especially when they're dealing with mental health issues, PTSD, also weaning people off of opioids and trying to figure out how else to address their pain and their suffering, whether it's mm -hmm. mental or physical, she sometimes will pull a mental health person into the room so that there's a tag team so that she can address the clinical issues. And she's also quite gifted at going deeper with patients to make sure they feel comfortable and safe. But having the behavioral health person there makes sure in a way, I'm just saying this now, thinking about mm -hmm. it based on what you're saying, it helps the provider to not lose sight of the other pieces. Like mm -hmm. what is going on with this person? Why are they so recalcitrant? Why don't they want to listen? Why are they so afraid? And when we come back from a very quick break, we're going to dig mm -hmm. deeper into this reptilian brain thing and also how we can change our worldview and not be so cold in healthcare and rehumanize it. So we will be right back after the break and we're going to dig deeper and deeper and get to the bottom of this once and for all. This episode of The Nurse Keith Show is sponsored by Trusted Health, a company built by nurses for nurses to understand what opportunities exist and connect to them in the most efficient and transparent way possible. They've replaced the traditional job search and staffing approach with an intelligent matching platform, empowering nurses to discover opportunities that fit their unique experiences, preferences, and goals. Instead of a commissions-based recruiter, Trusted Health uses nurse advocates, nurses just like you, some of whom have even traveled, who were commission-free. Because they're all commission-free, their goal isn't to get nurses into any open jobs. Instead, they focus on connecting each of their nurses to the travel assignments they want and supporting them every step of the way before, during, and after their assignment. And just in case you're wondering, they'll come right out and say it too. No, they don't hound you with phone calls and emails about jobs that you're not interested in, just the information you want when you want it. 
If you're interested, check out www.trustedhealth.com forward slash Nurse Keith. That's trustedhealth.com forward slash Nurse Keith. Fill out some basic information about your preferences and qualifications, and you can get started viewing job matches personalized for you in minutes. Join Trusted. They're not just an agency. They're a movement. And I thank Trusted Health for their generous support. Now, let's get back to the second half of this episode of The Nurse Keith Show. And we're back. Thanks for hanging out here at The Nurse Keith Show, episode 239. Remember, the show notes are at nursekeith.com forward slash the word episode and the number 239. Jennifer, Michelle, we were talking earlier, just before the break, about the reptilian brain, how we need to change this paradigm from kind of a mechanistic to a humanistic view of the delivery of healthcare. And I just want to say that you are a marketing specialist now and you focus very specifically on growing businesses and organizations in the healthcare world. You also host a great podcast called Leading with Health, and we will have a link to that in the show notes. And it's focused mostly on helping women find their voice so they can have a stronger, more responsive healthcare system. And you were marketing director for Open Tempo, which is a cloud-based healthcare scheduling platform. And you've done a lot of other things, including epidemiology, parasitology. So you bring a lot to the table here. And I'm curious around your podcast, when you're talking about women finding their voice to create a more responsive healthcare system, are you talking about women providers, women patients, or both sides of the equation? Well, that's interesting. Um, <laughs> I guess to me, I think of it in terms of women healthcare professionals, but it could be not necessarily providers, it could be administrators or people who are interested in the health sector. Mm. Um, I hadn't really thought about it in terms of the patient voice, so I do talk about that because obviously that's a big part of what I'm trying to communicate. Yeah. But in terms of listeners, I, I really, I guess I hadn't thought about it. I don't, I think I might need more time to see who's going to be listening to my podcast. It's, it's taken a lot of changes since I started it a year ago. So we're still trying to to do it, it was kind of a big leap in June when I said, you know, these these thoughts that you and I are discussing right now are the things that to me are the most interesting and the most important to be talking about for me right now. And I had been talking more about marketing in the healthcare sector and I was boring myself crazy. And it's not because I don't oh, like marketing, yeah. but even I don't want to listen to any more marketing tips. I mean, I've been doing this for 10 years. There's a ton that I like reading about and learning about, but that's, it's not the podcast I've wanted to do. So this was kind of me saying, this is my passion project. And there have to be other people in the healthcare world as well, who think that maybe there's a, there's an element missing in our approach here. And how do we, how do we bring that into things? That is so true. It is absolutely one of the things we need to pay attention to. Like my friend, Dr. Renee Thompson, who has the Healthy Workforce Institute, and they go into healthcare systems, helping to eradicate bullies, create a more civil culture, talk about kindness. And, you know, speaking of that, speaking of kindness, mm -hmm. you know, in the healthcare world, you know, we have so-called hard skills like starting an IV taking a blood pressure, changing a central line dressing, right? Mm -hmm. And you're an EMT, so you you have those hard skills when you're in an ambulance and dealing with- Well, I the, don't have those hard skills. Oh, well, some hard <laughs> yeah, skills. I have some of those hard skills. Right, some of them. So, 
Right. And then we have what used to be called the soft skills, which is seen as mainly the purview of the nurse. The doctor's the one who comes in, usually the male patriarchal doctor, comes in and says, oh, here's the problem. Here are the tools. This is how we're going to fix it. Thank you very much. And the nurse is the one who's going to lay her hand or his hand on the patient's forehead, translate the medicalese into language that the patient can understand. So we have to change that paradigm so that the soft skills are universal, that the doctor or the nurse practitioner or whoever it happens to be, the surgeon, can come in and see the person for a person and see underneath the condition. Like it's not just the arm, there's a person attached to that arm, right? <laughs> So usually. how right usually usually so unless we're like watching Mary Shelley's Frankenstein or something so yeah. a couple of farm accidents I suppose yeah there we go right so how do we impact this very entrenched world and change this paradigm how do we change the zeitgeist so that people see the value of this humanistic approach to healthcare well. It's interesting to me because I think it's happening. There's a book that I've spoken of on a couple of my podcasts now because I think it's very fascinating hmm. called Compassionomics. And Whoa. you know, okay, I gotta write that book. down right now. Oh yeah, no, it's it's absolutely wonderful. But it's basically a compilation of all the medical studies that have been done that show that compassion actually improves patient care and improves a whole host of other things. And I love it, but one of the things that drives me crazy about it is why did we need to do this book? And this was literally an assignment that this doctor got from one of their administrators saying, we have to show that this kind of care has a good effect on the bottom line, that it has a good effect on patient care and health and, and outcomes. And it, they did show it. They pulled all the studies together and did an amazing amount of you know research on that to show that, in fact, it does. But to me, one that tells me, oh my God, we have so far to go. We have so far to go that we don't even understand that it's not our thinking that makes us living human beings. It's our compassion. It's our ability to empathize. That's what makes us something special. Otherwise, we're just robots. And mm. robots learn to empathize and they will be human too. I mean, I'm, I've always said, you know, I fully understand that in the future, my my son-in-law might wind up being an android and I'm okay with that. So I'm just saying. <laughs> or a cyborg, something like some, that. Some kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But I think it says, one, how far we have to go in terms of realizing that this is not just some nice thing, but it's a real thing. Because I think... um it was a sentence I read in a book many, many years ago. And it was like, you know, if you're so focused on the light, you never value the darkness it's shining into so you can hmm. see it. And you need it. You need the darkness or the light doesn't exist. And I think that we don't value compassion because we're just used to thinking of it as, a, oh, they're a little boo-boo thing. But actually, those basic things that come from, you know, traditionally maternal care, but certainly parental care, loving parental care originally – it's fundamental to the entire person's you know, view of life as they go through it. I mean, that sets their, their baseline and their expectations of how they should be treated and how they're going to treat others. So I'm sorry, but you know, Mr. Rogers really was on the ball here. Don't <laughs> he be really sorry. Understood he knew stuff it. Is, he knew, he knew it. it. He understood this is critical stuff and we teach it to our children and then we expect them to dismiss it and get into the real world. But actually that is the real world and we have an incomplete world. 
and healthcare, it shows up a lot because no one is more vulnerable than when they are sick or dying or literally physically or emotionally somehow broken and in this health system. And they're dealing with complete strangers to take care of their most private personal issues and most painful issues. So I think the more we value it and the more we explore it, that leads people to understand it in themselves. And we're seeing a trend. You know, people are talking more about their own mental health issues, their own disability issues. And I think that's showing the sense that we have to talk about how it really feels to be who we are. And that makes it okay to be that person, even in a health system, even in this so-called intellectual, rational world. And I think that will allow it to come together. But our society is so split on this right now, it's going to take a lot of healing. But the healing has to start with acknowledging that something important is missing, because it is. Yeah, well, I mean, our society is split in so many ways, politically, emotionally. I mean, you could, the splits go on and on and on. We can find so many places where we're missing, we're missing the boat and we're we're bifurcated when we mm-hmm. should not be bifurcated we should be monocated i don't know we should be <laughs> monocated. Unif- monocated okay but it makes sense Coined a if term. you look at it from a reptile <laughs> viewpoint which yeah. is you're with me you're against me my tribe or your tribe mm-hmm. and we have very much politically right now but what is happening i think this is this is my theory of the moment no Go for <laughs> it. just Go for the it. moment yeah. i think the people who like um this very top-down, my way or the highway kind of administration that we have right now, you know, the, the current president, I'm not a, not a fan of Trump, but mm-hmm. I think what he does is trigger these fears in his followers. And they get scared of feeling like they're being left behind or not being worthy or dismissed in some way or not valued. And I think he very subtly triggers that and then instantly talks in powerful terms to calm that. Mm-hmm. So it's very much a, a brainstem level manipulation going on. And that becomes this charisma that they all keep wanting to listen to. And I think that you can't rationalize it. And it's why when you sit down to talk, it you can't, you know, you give facts, you give all the stuff, and it doesn't necessarily change that viewpoint. Because again, with humans, you can't rationalize away a decision we've made at that core emotional survival level because it's not how we're built. It's not how we're wired. So I think that's why, you know, we have this thing where the Democrats keep trying to present data and all of this and the Republicans keep coming back with other things. And you're wondering how can they disagree on basic issues about healthcare or how to take care of society or what a community is. But it's not because theoretically they're that different. It's because on an emotional level, we've decided that survival means going in a different direction. Mm. And until we can find a way to to heal that in ourselves, I don't think we can reach out very well to anybody else because their opposition threatens us so much. Even if really in reality, we're trying to work for the same thing. And that to me is the quintessential situation we have to heal right now, or we're not going to get anywhere. Good point. Good point. And we have so many vulnerable populations in this country and any country, but let's focus on the U.S. So, so many vulnerable populations, whether they're mentally ill, physically ill, whether they're quote unquote minorities who have been, who have been beaten down, subjugated, marginalized for so long. And we know there are still racial biases in healthcare. There Mm -hmm. are all sorts of biases, socioeconomic, 
and otherwise. And, you know, if we can't bring this human level awareness of people's pain and struggles and why they decide to do things they, they do or don't do, we're, you're right, we're not going to get anywhere. And mm-hmm. I want to just give a very, uh, just a personal example. You know, I've spoken on this show before. There's a recent episode with nurse writer Ashley Hay, and we talked mostly about being chronically ill as a nurse and a healthcare provider. She has left the clinical milieu, and I have too. And we both talked about, I talked about having living with depression and chronic pain and PTSD. She talked about her own issues. And that's where we can connect with our humanity and the humanity of others if we recognize our own vulnerabilities and the vulnerabilities of the people we're serving. And one example I would just bring up is that I had several surgeries over the last few years, one in 2017, one in 2018, for a terrible accident that I had. And What happened was my original surgeon, who is a monster, I mean, he is amazing in the OR, but when he was at my bedside getting ready to discharge me, his approach from my perspective was kind of sociopathic. (laughs) It was like, I hear your psychosocial issues, but you need to go home anyway, right? My psychosocial issues did not matter to him. It didn't matter that We lived in a home with a spiral staircase up to the bedroom, and I didn't have a hospital bed, and I didn't have anything I needed in place to go home after a terrible injury and not being able to walk. And then when the surgery was revised a year later, his protege, my next surgeon, he would sit down at the bedside and be incredibly empathic and approach me in a completely different way. And he focused on my emotions and talked about the mechanics of what he was going to do to my leg to fix it. Right. Mm -hmm. So I had on one hand, a very sociopathic (laughs) mechanistic provider looking at me as if I was just, here is my foot, my foot's better. You got to go home right? Nothing else matters. How you feel doesn't matter. And then the other surgeon was very focused on how I felt. So there for me is a very direct example of going from mechanistic to humanistic Mm -hmm. and valuing the quote unquote soft skills of listening to me and the hard skill of saying, I'm going to fix your leg and put a new plate and screws in it, right? So- Let's say medical school. How do we approach medical training so that our new providers, medical doctors, how do they look at the world in a different way? How do they do that? You know, I I guess I'm thinking of things too. I, I have Crohn's disease and many years ago I, I had surgery for it and mm. my surgeon also thought I was taking up too much time asking about questions and <laughs> didn't um, bother some patient. That I was you know, I was in my, my mid twenties and I had no family. So there was nobody coming to visit me. There was no support. There was nothing. It was Mm. just me. And this had been going on for months and all of this. And so he didn't really think about what that meant in terms of my ability to cope with this. And all I remember is him drawing this line down the middle of my stomach and saying that, so that's where we're going to just do this incision. And I was 24 and bikini thoughts aside at that time, I was a belly dancer. And that was a huge part of my life. And I'm like, absolutely not. 
And I thank God to this day that that part of me came up and was like, no. (laughs) And we haggled. And I remember haggling. Can you put the incision here? And he's like, well, then I might not be able to reach. And then I'm going to also have to do this. And we, we literally haggled on what inch and what part of my body. And I got one that my costumes can cover. So that worked out very well, but he was not really pleasant, except that he at least was responsive to that. But then there was another doctor who was so scared by the, um, the obstruction that they found in me and how big it was because I had been in denial for months and ignored it and went okay. traveling all over and just ignored that I was puking all the time. And um, <laughs> he was like, he wouldn't look at me and he kept mumbling and I couldn't hear him and he wasn't making eye contact. He was telling me this could go at any moment. You shouldn't even go home to get anything. And I'm like, what? And I came out of there yelling my head off and yelling at the nurse station going, that man doesn't come anywhere near me. I want it all over my records. I don't care if my heart leaps out of my body and bounces around the room. He doesn't touch me. And um, wow. they just nodded. <laughs> yeah. And he never came near me You're again, like, which is okay. Nice. So, um, but I, you know, I, I get, I won't even go into where that all comes from, but I, I learned early on, I got Crohn's when I was 12. I learned you have to be very forthcoming, but what I honestly think it is, I I think you can teach kindness. I think you can teach compassion. But we have to understand that some people are coming from places. So they're in med school, they're in nursing school, and they've never received that. They don't come from homes that are caring. And, you know, there's one thing that being an EMT really shines a light on is you walk into someone's home and you can tell if that family cares about one another or not. You can feel it. You can Ooh. feel it in a second. Yeah. And you don't learn you just don't learn as much about a person. They always say until you follow them home. And I'm saying the minute you walk in, you know, wow, there's abuse in this home. There is alcoholism in this home. There is chronic pain and no one is supporting each other. You you can feel it hanging in the air and the way they look at each other and, and that you're there not to help someone, but more to referee a situation that the family can't handle anymore. And it's, you, you just can tell. So there are people going into these you know, professions that are about providing care because they're caring people and they want to do that, but they've never received that themselves. And that's something I think we need to acknowledge is, you know, you have to learn it. I mean, I was from a family that was not a caring family and there were a lot of, you know, I'm, I still think I became a caring person, but I had to learn a lot of that as an adult. I'm still learning it. And I, um, you know, my husband was from a family that was very caring and, I still have to learn from him because I get my hackles raised really easily. I get very defensive Uh and I shut down in a way he just doesn't. And I think that's the kind of thing that we have to help people through their own emotional exploration so we can be open to someone else's pain because you can't be there for someone else's pain if you have shut down to your own pain because no one was there for you when you were in pain. Mm. So I guess what you're saying in some way is that I, as a nurse, can take my own personal experiences, internalize them, translate them, and then use them as a place to cultivate compassion for others' suffering? Yes, but also I think we have to understand that our own journey is part of our ability to take care of others, that it's not like memorizing a textbook. Taking care of another person requires honestly, that we also take care of ourselves and heal our own pain. And this obviously leads into the whole issue of burnout going on in medicine right now for doctors and nurses. And I think there is a connection there. You cannot, you know, we talk about how you can't be compassionate once you're burned out, but you will burn out because there wasn't compassion to begin with towards you. And you can't give what you don't have. So I think the whole 
paradigm has to be flipped to how do we nurture ourselves as we learn to nurture others? And how do we take care of ourselves as we take care of those other patients? Mm. And that is an entirely different viewpoint than our current medical system, which is we take care of them. We work 24, 36 hour shifts. We don't get a break. We take pride in not peeing for 12 hours at a crack. And that is who we are. And that is not good care. That's not good care. No. So it's not good care of the provider. It's not good care of the patient either. And I think we are not making that connection yet that says this burned out, exhausted person who needs to pee and hasn't eaten, (laughs) maybe they're not in the best state to provide care. I mean, think about anyone with a child. You know, when you are exhausted and hungry and need to pee, are you at your best for dealing with the toddler's tantrum? No. Mm -hmm. So it's, I, I just think that these are, again, basic as you would say, humanistic ideas that come from the concept of family and caring for one another that have been excised from our current healthcare system is if they were, you know, a, a, like a little frippery, a little tra-la and not a, an actual fundamental part of being human and taking care of one another. Mm, yeah. So. Boy, <laughs> you pack so much punch into several sentences. You're, you're, I really, I, I do see you as a thought leader. I do, I do. That's how I look at you, you in this world. And I think you have something very special you're bringing to the table here. And from your public health perspective, your humanistic perspective, and the fact that you're an EMT and that you work, it sounds like in a very local milieu in Northern Vermont near the Canadian border. So (laughs) you see a lot out in the world and you look at it through different lenses, which I think is a very fascinating combination. And, you know, when you're talking about the nurses not being able to pee and having this almost martyred pride and yeah, I didn't pee for 16 hours and I, you know, didn't sleep last night. And, you know, and there might be a nurse out there saying, yeah, I actually do. I'm guilty of that. I pride myself on this suffering because it shows what a good nurse I am. And that's, that's not a healthy way to look at what we do. And the employers we work for often encourage that kind of behavior. It's like, sure, work, work a double. And no, we're not going to give you a break. There is no nurse to replace you for you to go have lunch. So grab a cracker and some milk in the in the um, kitchen because that's about all you're going to get. And this brings me to data I've seen recently that literally 400 doctors take their lives a year. So yeah. an average of one per day. We do not have statistics I can find on how many nurses take their lives, but I'm sure it happens. And I'm sure there's a nurse out there nodding saying, yep, I've been there. I've been on the edge of suicidality, or I've just been on the edge of being on the edge. Like I'm just, I've had it up to here and I've burned out. So I understand what that's like. It is not comfortable. And we cannot provide the care we want when we're not looking at ourselves deeply. And the system does not encourage that. And I think we've lost, we've lost something very important. And people like you are really trying to bring that back. And I really appreciate this, this approach that you're using to healthcare. I just want to say that. 
Thank you. I mean, I, I think these are the issues that I hear you talking about on your show as well. And I think it's something that people are starting to listen to. And it's it's interesting. I stumbled on the issue of physician suicide many years ago hmm. um, through Dr. Pam Weibel. And I'm trying to think of how I first connected with her. But I, I think I might have found her on Twitter many, many years ago. And now it's become a much more talked about thing and the statistics are out there more and it's at least something people are looking at. But I think it's partly because our society thinks that caring has to be a martyrdom, that the best people are these saints that want nothing and give everything. And to me, that's not that's not what love looks like. Love should be a self-generating thing where as you give it, it's received and sent back to you and it closes this loop. And while I'm not saying that we're going to, you know, be in love with our patients, but there is compassion is an aspect of love. It's a loving kind of care that we're talking about and it needs to be given, but it also needs to be given back. And instead we have this very brutal system that runs you till you're ragged, doesn't value you and shuts you out the door the minute you collapse from it. And doesn't understand that if you were nourished and replenished, everything would benefit and everything would grow. And plus, it's very hard to think creatively when we're burned out and fried. It's not possible, let alone a hostile environment surrounding that, which is often what happens in, in a lot of these situations. So I think people need to to just start understanding that taking care of the caregiver is essential to providing good care to the patient. And it's not just true in home care. It's true in hospital settings. It's true in all of those settings. True. It, yeah, every setting. And yeah. you know, as we wind down here, there's so many aspects of this that are fascinating. And if you go back to um, the Nurse Keith Show episode 216 with Dr. Ted O'Connell, he teaches medical residents who are going through a program to become general practitioners, you know, family medicine docs, which we need desperately. Mm -hmm. And he talks about in that episode of how he brings students to his home and introduces them to his family on one hand to show them that you can actually have a life, that it's mm -hmm. not all about sacrificing yourself on the altar of medicine, that you have to have a life where you spend time with your children and your spouse and you have some fun and you you know you do the things that humans do and then the next episode 218 or two episodes after that is Jacob Morris of Discover Your Values and he's doing all this work around values and how values are so important in what we do and why we decide how we act or how we act based on our values, whether we're thinking about them or not. And those are important things to consider. And I think here you are talking about values to a great extent, like the values that inform how we approach a patient or how a patient comes in with fear or trust in the healthcare system, right? All well, these experiences add up throughout our lives. I mean, I see this even at the EMT level is mm -hmm. the sense of valuing the procedure, but I actually prefer the connection with the patient. That's the part that I find most fun. Whereas there are a lot of people who are like, oh, I got to do this procedure or I got to do that procedure. And obviously you still need to do the procedures, but it's definitely a perspective on what is more valued and what is maybe, well, yeah, we didn't have to learn that. We just have to be nice. And yeah. it's like, well, actually there's a lot to it. 
And it's, it's the same thing though that you describe with the nurses. It's like people do 12 hour shifts. And I mean, there's a paramedic I know who spent most of last week, you know, at the rescue because he was on per deans covering shifts because it's such a rural area. We have a hard time getting people to fill up, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And he's like, I haven't been home in three days. It's just, it's crazy. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. Right. And that cannot be the norm. That can't be the way that we, that we approach the world. You know, and I definitely want to look up the book Compassionomics. I'm going to have a link to it in the show notes. And I'll also have a link to something about the triple bottom line, because I think that's important. And of course, there will be links to all of your stuff as well. So as we wrap up, is there anything we didn't talk about that you think we should mention here vis-a-vis all the stuff that we're, we're digging into? No, I think this, we covered so many things. Oh my gosh. I think we went all over the place. So yeah, I think we covered it. Yeah. Journey of a thousand miles. So I know people can find you at michellemarketingstrategies.com. So you use your last name, michellemarketingstrategies.com. You're also on Instagram at Jennifer Michelle. MMS, which is Michelle Marketing Strategies. And then Twitter is MMS Jennifer. We'll also have a link to your LinkedIn profile if people want to reach out to you. And if you're listening out there and you want to get in touch with Jennifer by LinkedIn, please take my advice that I'm always giving ad nauseum. Send her a personalized message saying, hey, I heard you on the Nurse Keith show. Would love to have a chat with you or connect with you around this or that. So just a word to the wise. And if they want to email you, it is jennifer at michellemarketingstrategies.com, correct? Yes. And I will say I am much more easily reached on LinkedIn, email, or Twitter than Instagram. There we go. I tend to disappear from Instagram. Sorry about that. That's okay. That's all right. (laughs) And, you know, you're president of Michelle Marketing Strategies. So you're focusing on growing organizations and businesses in the healthcare sector. So if anyone out there wants to hit you up for advice or consulting, they can go to your website and learn about what you do. And it's really important work. And I can't thank you enough for doing it. Well, Thank you. I, this has been so much fun talking with you. This has oh. just been an amazing conversation. So oh. thank you for having me on the podcast. You're the best. And we're going to have to do this again, maybe in 2020. So let's stay on each other's radar. And thank you so much for being here and doing what you do, Jennifer. Thank you. Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to the Nurse Keith Show. And remember those show notes, you're going to want to go there, nursekeith.com forward slash the word episode and the number 239. I hope you feel uplifted and empowered from this episode. And I hope your reptilian brain will feel cared for and you can move forward thinking about all of these aspects of healthcare delivery that we've discussed today. And if you head over to nursekeith.com to the resources drop down, you will find Discover Your Values, which I mentioned with Jacob Morris, which is an amazing card deck that you can use to explore your values or the values of your organization, your family, etc. It's a really fascinating exercise. You can also find jobs from reload.com and ZipRecruiter and all sorts of stuff 
free and otherwise, that'll help you take your life and career to the next level. The Nurse Keith Show is edited and produced by Tim Hollowell and his awesome team at thepodcastinggroup.com. And Mark Cappiespeason is our social media ringmaster. Please keep tuning in again and again. We're going to keep exploring how to take your life, your career, and the healthcare system at large to the next level. Be well, dig deep, seek joy, keep in touch. This is Nurse Keith saying adios till next time from beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico, and Jennifer Michelle saying see you later from Jennifer. Yes, Vermont. 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 <laughs> <laughs> you are in Vermont, are you not? I am in Vermont. Yay. All right. Well, thank you, Jennifer. And we will catch you all on the flip side.